This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be looking this morning at verses 12 through 25, Matthew 4, 12 through 25. We'll continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and Lord, as we study this portion of it this morning, we pray for your grace, we pray for your Spirit's assistance, and pray that you would, by your Spirit, drive home your word into our hearts, and inform our minds, and change our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may recall from our study of Ecclesiastes, or perhaps your own reading of that book, that Koheleth, the preacher, makes the statement, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Now, there's something to that. There is something to concluding a project, wrapping up a job, uh, having finished the work you set out to do. Nevertheless, the beginning can certainly be exciting. It can be a time filled with anticipation, expectation, and hope. And certainly, That is the tone that we find in these verses before us this morning. This is a time of new beginning when Jesus has set out upon his public ministry. 
You'll recall that um, the last couple of weeks we've been in Matthew's Gospel, we've been looking at events of preparation for Jesus, going back to uh, the ministry of John the Baptist, a ministry of baptizing those who came in repentance, confessing their sins, preparing the people, preparing their hearts for the coming Messiah. And then John's introduction of Jesus and his baptism of Jesus to fulfill all righteousness as Jesus identifies himself with those he came to save, identifying himself with them in their sin, with us in our sin. And that anointing of the Holy Spirit and that voice uh, from heaven, the voice of the Father commending his Son, expressing his pleasure in his son as he is set apart now for his public ministry. But there was one other event of preparation that Jesus faced, and that was the grueling experience of that 40-day fast and the uh, assault, the temptations of Satan there in the wilderness. What would his messiahship look like? Would he take the easy route? Would he take the shortcut? Or would he, in fact, be the suffering servant of Isaiah who came into his kingdom through the cross. And, of course, Jesus settled that question, refusing to yield to the appeals of Satan, the offers that he made, and, in fact, uh, very firmly expressing his commitment to be obedient to his father and to carry out the purpose for which he had come. Well, that brings us then to the passage that we have just read where Jesus begins in Matthew's gospel, his, his public ministry. As we look at this passage, we can divide it into uh, to sections and to, or to thoughts, four Ps, if you want to remember them that way, prophecy, preaching, people, and power. In the first place, as we come to this passage, you see that Jesus' ministry, and particularly its beginning there in Galilee, was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We read in verse 12, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, let's review a little bit of your uh, geography. Uh, Of course, if you have a Bible with maps in it, this is all there in the back. But you recall that Jerusalem, Bethlehem, all were in the south, uh, down near the Dead Sea. And then the Jordan River flowed down to it from the Sea of Galilee in the north. And the region of Galilee is, is to the north. Uh, Jerusalem, Judea in the south. Well, Jesus, as we had read earlier, had uh, gone down, verse uh, chapter 3, verse 13, from Galilee, from the north, where Nazareth was, down to the Jordan River to John, down in Judea, to be baptized by him. Now, we read, when he heard that John had been arrested, now, Matthew doesn't go into any details about that at this point. He will later, in later chapters in his gospel, and we'll look at those events when we come to them in our study of Matthew. But when word came to Jesus that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, John was arrested by Herod Antipas because... As, uh, as Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, indicates that John was perceived as a threat. John was, was seen by the powers that be as attracting a following. Now, you and I know that John had no political or military aspirations. 
However, in the eyes of Herod, that was a threatening event, that there was this man who was drawing a following of people. People were going out to see him. People were going out to hear him. And that, to, to the king, posed a threat. And so he had John put in prison. It's recorded, of course, in Scripture. Josephus records it uh, as well, kind of an outside-the-Bible perspective, uh, as Josephus writes about what happened there. But John is arrested. And we read that Jesus withdrew into Galilee. That word occurs in a number of places. Uh, it can have the idea of departing. It typically, in Matthew, will have the idea of moving away from a negative situation, maybe even from danger. For example, in chapter 2, verse 12, the, the, the wise men, warned in a dream, withdrew. The ESV translates it departed, but it's the same word. Withdrew to their own country by another way. Uh, and then the end of chapter uh, 2, we read in verse 22, when he heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid together, being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And here that word occurs again. Now, it's possible that Jesus was leaving because of the danger there. However, the same Herod, Herod Antipas, also was ruler over Galilee. So Jesus was not moving out of his territory. So it doesn't seem likely that Jesus went back north out of fear of threat from Herod because he was under the same Herod when he was in Galilee. It just seems to be a matter of timing. And we don't know how long it was after Jesus' baptism that John was arrested. Apparently, some period of time probably went by that Jesus was in the south in Judea. Uh, John's ministry continuing, unless John was arrested immediately after or shortly after Jesus' baptism. Uh, and the other Gospels seem to indicate that there may have been some ministry in the south, in Judea, before Jesus went back north. Well, we read that he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Now, Capernaum was on the northwestern bank of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the Sea of Galilee had a number of villages along it. Uh, including Bethsaida, you know from other biblical texts. Bethsaida, name roughly means fish town. Uh, the Sea of Galilee was, had a thriving fishery in those days. Um, it was about it was some, several hundred feet below sea level, surrounded by mountains, as you know, could become stormy quite quickly. But uh, Jesus went to Capernaum. Why did he leave Nazareth? He apparently went back to Nazareth, but then left there. Uh, it may be because of events like the one we read in our New Testament reading, which took place in Nazareth, where there was a general, uh, and, and in other passages too, a rejection of Jesus. They took offense at Jesus. Isn't this Joseph's son? Who does he think he is? And when Jesus started talking about uh, the ministry of Elijah and Naaman the Syrian, they really took offense because he, he was pointing out God's favor to non-Israelites over Israelites. Uh, and that may be why he withdrew from Nazareth. And he went to Capernaum. The name Kephar Nahum means something like village of Nahum. We don't know who Nahum was, but that was just the name of the town. Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, the two northernmost tribes of Israel, mentioned only here in Revelation in the New Testament. But all of this is important because, as we've seen with Matthew, he likes to show especially for the benefit of his targeted Jewish readers, how Jesus' life and ministry fulfilled the Old Testament. And so he cites this prophecy that we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 9, 
uh, as being fulfilled in Jesus' ministry, that this aspect of going to the north, to Galilee, Zebulun and Naphtali, beginning his ministry in, or setting up his uh, center of ministry in Capernaum, fulfills this prophecy. Now, verses 15 and 16, Matthew quotes the prophecy, this region, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. All of that describing this area. It was, from the viewpoint of one from the east, on the the west side, beyond the Jordan. There was a trade route through Galilee to the Mediterranean. And it was, in fact, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, For some time, the region had a significant Gentile population, in fact, more numerous than the Jews living in that area, which had a couple of effects. One, uh, they tended to be exposed to more of the ideas, more of the trends of the day, more of the culture of the day, uh, in that they were exposed to what was going on in the larger world, whereas Jerusalem and Judea, more mountainous, tended to be more isolated. Of course, Jerusalem was the center of Israel, the center of the Jews, and there was a much stronger Jewish presence in the south, whereas in the north, uh, it simply wasn't as strong, even among the Jews who were there. They still had their synagogues and so forth, but they tended to be uh, more integrated with many of the Gentiles around them. And so the more pure Jews in the south tended to look on their northern neighbors with, with some question as to their as to their purity, as to their Jewish integrity. Uh, but there was a significant Gentile presence there as well. And that's reflected in the terms that Isaiah uses, and Matthew quotes here, Galilee of the Gentiles, including the idea that they lived in darkness. Verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, we don't want to press this too hard, but it's significant to me, it seems, and no accident, that Jesus here, as Matthew is describing it, for Jews, began his ministry in Galilee and not in Jerusalem. Which, as Jesus himself says in another another place, that the Son of Man came to seek sinners, not the righteous. The light of Jesus' ministry dawns in the darkest part of Israel, Galilee, in the north. And so we see in Jesus' ministry, and it's beginning here, this fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, which itself indicates the nature of Jesus' ministry. One, it's to sinners. It's to those who see their need of a Savior, not to those who are satisfied with their own righteousness. Of course, you know the particular incident, some of which we'll look at in Matthew, as Jesus interacts with those who were blinded by their own self-righteousness and couldn't see their need of Christ and couldn't see the identity of Christ. But it also tells us something about the character of Jesus' ministry in that it was not just for the Jews, that Jesus' ministry would be a fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, as Jesus was the seed of Abraham, that he would be a blessing to the nations, not just to the Jews, though certainly to them, and in Jesus' own ministry, foremost to them. Jesus told the woman, you know, I've come to the children of Israel. You know, and she said, well, even the, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table. And he was amazed at her faith and her perseverance. He said, your faith has made you well. But Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles certainly is seen uh, in the book of Acts as the gospel goes more powerfully and, and more widespread to the Gentiles. But even that's hinted at here, just as it was foretold to Abraham, it's hinted at here. Jesus began his ministry here in an area where there were a lot of Gentiles, not in Jewish Jerusalem 
to the south. And certainly for you and me, we ought to be glad of that uh, as we follow Jesus and our children of Abraham by faith as well. So prophecy was an important part of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Preaching. We see that in simply in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you've heard that sermon before, it's because that's what John was preaching, right? Uh, verbatim, the message that John was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 3, verse 2. Two very different men. Same message. A little different context. John, of course, was the forerunner to the Messiah. He was preaching this Old Testament message of repentance for the Messiah is coming. Jesus, of course, is the Messiah. He is the the one who, through his life and death and resurrection, is going to make that great, and the pouring out of the Spirit, that great shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It was going to happen in him. So a little different take on it. This is the Messiah who has come. But it's the same message. You call to repent, call to recognize your sin, call to recognize that God is holy and you are not, and we have offended him, and we need to take a right and biblical understanding of our sins and who we are before God, our lack of righteousness, and turn to the Messiah. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And uh, in a new way, it's one thing for John to say that. It's another thing for the very embodiment of that kingdom to come and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the king of the kingdom who is who is now speaking to you. But nevertheless, the same message and the kingdom had come with Jesus here. The kingdom would come through his ministry, his death, his resurrection. The kingdom would certainly come with the outpouring of his spirit. The kingdom comes person who repents of his sin and follows Jesus. And of course, the kingdom will come. Finally and fully with Jesus' return and the uh, ushering in of the kingdom in all of its fullness. But the point is the urgency. This is coming. You need to be prepared. You need to respond rightly. And the right response is repentance and faith. So preaching, the, the message of the kingdom, was a part of Jesus' ministry as it began. Proclamation is what the word preaching there means. To proclaim, to be a herald. But then also people, another important aspect of the kingdom. And certainly we see that in these earliest days of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, in verse 18, having moved to Capernaum and really made that his base of operations, is walking along the bank of the Sea of Galilee. Now that in itself is not unusual for any number of reasons. One, he may just have been out for fresh air. But more importantly, it was typical of teachers or rabbis of the day to be peripatetic. In other words, they walked around. They tended to go out and they were where, where people were and they tended to be mobile. They, they walked around and, and, and frequently they would have their, their students or their disciples with them. And they would talk about things, ideas, teachings and so forth. Or... As events happened around them or they encountered people around them, they would, uh, they would talk about that. You know, sort of the uh, teaching opportunities that would arise. And so uh, Jesus uh, is really following a, a common example in, in being out walking, and it may have had more to do with, than just being out for fresh air. At any rate, we read he's walking along the Sea of Galilee there, and he sees two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter. John tells us he's called Peter because Jesus said to him, 
uh, Simon, you are, you are Cephas. From now on, you'll be called Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock, or the Greek word Petros, Peter. Uh, and he, he's called Peter because Jesus gave him that name. Uh, and, and John tells us about that. Matthew simply notes that this Simon is also the same man who is called Peter. And Andrew, his brother. Now, they're there casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. This is their task. And Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And, of course, then the calling of these other two, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and there with their father, they're in a boat uh, mending their nets, repairing their nets. Presumably uh, it was morning. They had been out all night fishing. And they were back in the boat, taking care of their equipment, repairing everything. And Jesus comes along to them. And he calls them. And we, again, immediately, that adverb there, immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Um, other Gospels indicate that, uh, Mark particularly indicates that they left their father and the hired servants who were doing this work, which indicates that uh, while a family business, it may have been a little larger than just the father and his sons. They had hired men, employees, who were also working with them, which indicates that this was an enterprise of some size, which should give us pause before we exaggerate too much any idea of the, the, the poverty uh, of, of these men. They weren't necessarily uh, broke. Poor, uh, apparently somewhat prosperous in what was a thriving industry in that day. They were not ignorant men. They were businessmen uh, and quite possibly literate as as well. And so uh, while we speak of Jesus' followers being common fishermen, we don't want to get the idea that somehow uh, that they were ignorant or, or dirt poor. It just does not seem to fit with the facts in Scripture. They were involved in a thriving business. Uh, quite possibly prosperous uh, and certainly intelligent and enterprising men. In fact, you may recall uh, in Matthew 19, after the encounter with the rich young man, and Jesus speaks of how hard it is for those with wealth to follow him, and Peter says, what about us? We've left everything to follow you, which seems to imply that they left a considerable everything behind to follow Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this and been puzzled by how quickly they dropped everything and went after Jesus. You know, was it some sort of supernatural power Jesus had over them? Was there just so much charisma in Jesus' personality that their jaws just dropped and they just mindlessly followed him? Well, probably not. It's quite possible that they had encountered Jesus before. In fact, if you look at John chapter 1, there's some interaction that may have occurred before this. It's quite possible Jesus had interacted with them before, talked with them. That they may have even uh, followed a call to 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 become his disciples at some point. And there's no reason to think that following Jesus meant that they never went back to their fishing work. In fact, we read in John 21 after Jesus' uh, death that they went back to fishing. So it's quite possible interspersed through their following Jesus that there were times when they went back to their their employment, their work here. Um, at any rate, it seems likely to me that they at least knew of Jesus, quite possibly had had interactions with Jesus, and even possibly have obeyed a call to follow Jesus prior to this point. 
certainly, I think they, they acted intelligently. They acted knowing what was going on. But let's look at what Jesus says to them. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I think we need to take the two parts of that call seriously. First of all, Jesus said, follow me. Now, in its literal meaning, that, that would simply indicate Jesus says, I'm, I'm heading off this way and I want you to walk with me, which they apparently did. But of course, in a fuller sense, following Jesus meant more than just uh, leaving the boat and walking with him off down the beach. It meant following a call to discipleship, a call to submit to themselves to his training, to his teaching. Now, that in itself was a little unusual. Usually the student chose the rabbi, and a popular rabbi would have no shortage of requests from uh, pupils wanting to put themselves under his tutelage. In Jesus' case, perhaps following that, maybe an echo here of Elijah calling Elisha, you know, casting his mantle on Elisha as an evidence of calling him, Jesus himself picks his students, a little bit of a reversal of the, the typical procedure. But Jesus says, follow me. And there's a great deal of meaning in those words for them, a call to discipleship, but also for us. Because while Jesus certainly called Peter and Andrew and James and John and the others to be his disciples in a unique way as future apostles, witnesses of his resurrection, uh, Jesus comes to everyone, every one of us with this call. He says, follow me. It is a call to discipleship. It is a call to submit ourselves to Jesus' tutelage, to his teaching, and to follow him as his students, as his disciples. The fact is that you and I today, though not seeing Jesus physically in the flesh, are called to become his disciples. We are called to follow him. For some of us, that may mean leaving a previous life, a previous calling, a previous occupation or employment or previous aspirations and following Jesus in the aspirations he has for you, much as it did for these men, where it meant actually leaving a previous employment. But for others, it simply means following Jesus, being his disciple in that context in which he calls you. Remember the man Jesus healed and he said, I want to come with you. And Jesus said, no, stay here. And tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you. Jesus told the man to stay. No, don't follow me. Don't come after me in that sense. Follow me in the sense of staying here, staying where you are, and telling everyone of God's grace to you. So when Jesus calls someone, follow me, it may mean pulling up roots and going elsewhere. But very often it simply means continuing to serve him and be his disciple where you are. Now Jesus says, follow me and something will happen. He says to them, I will make you fishers of men. Now, there's an instance of the, of the teacher taking the, the circumstances around him at the moment and drawing from it an analogy, a metaphor, which is one of the reasons they walked around, to take things from everyday life and teach, a teaching occasion, teaching opportunity. Well, here you are, you're fishermen, you're mending your nets, you've just uh, finished up an evening, a night of fishing. Well, if you follow me, I will make you You'll still be fishermen, but you'll be fishing for bigger fish. I'll make you fishers of men. You'll be looking for people. And not in some sinister way, not in trying to trick people, not in trying to deceive them into taking the hook, uh, but in, just in the, in the obvious sense of rather than seeking to draw fish, you're seeking to draw people into the kingdom. Now, 
there are a lot of Christians who feel guilt about this, about being fishers of men, about evangelism. And I would just say a couple of things to you. One, uh, we're all called to be part of the enterprise of the church, the fishing enterprise of the church, and that takes different forms for different people depending on what your gifts are. Uh, God works with you through your personality, your temperament. Some people are more outgoing and more comfortable easily talking with, with total strangers. Uh, other people are more reticent and reserved and find it much harder to talk to people and certainly talk to people about things as significant as one's soul and standing before God. But the point is evangelism and missions are the work of the church, and each of us has a gift that fits into the whole effort of the church in fishing. If a fishing boat goes out, someone has to drive the boat, someone has to you know, take care, make sure the, the lines are baited and so forth, and other people actually have the lines in the water and reel the fish in. Uh, but it's all a, a joint endeavor. So that's the first thing. second thing that I would mention here is Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't say you'll be fishers of men. He says, I'll make you fishers of men. Becoming a fisher of men is, is, a, is a result or a byproduct of our discipleship, of following Jesus. And I think it occurs in this way. When we follow Jesus, when we grow in grace, we begin to see things more and more as he does. For one thing, we tend to have more and more a sense of burden for those who are outside of Christ and who need Christ. For another thing, God may enable us as we grow in Christ to overcome our natural hesitance in speaking to other people about Christ. As we understand the gospel better, as we grow to maturity in Christ, uh, there's a, a more of a readiness to speak to others about their soul and to tell others what Jesus has done for us. And a willingness to have them think we're complete fools or whatever the case might be, or even, even turn against us. But Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. And we see that in their lives. Peter, for instance, going from being so fearful to being filled with the Spirit and becoming a great fisher of men. But he wasn't that from the beginning. He wasn't that for quite a long time, actually. But Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The amazing thing is, Jesus could have done it all himself, but he didn't. He chose to use people. And he chooses to use people like you and me Today, as we follow him, he makes us part of the enterprise of the church in being fishers of men and in, in drawing others into the kingdom of God. So prophecy, preaching, people. And the fourth P that we want to look at is power. Now, Matthew presents just something of a summary here, just a little bit of an overview. Some of these he will flesh out in greater detail in the chapters to come. Look at verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What you see here is the power of the kingdom and the power of the king, this, this power of Christ to bring healing. He taught in the synagogues, the gathering place, uh, again, continued to proclaim or preach the good news of the kingdom, that the Messiah, the Savior, has come, and healing every disease. So you see the power of the word in his teaching, in his preaching. You see the power of his mercy ministry in, in bringing healing and showing the grace and mercy of God to those he came. Uh, in healing every kind of disease, every kind of affliction. And of course he became well known. Notice he doesn't say in Galilee, he says in Syria. Even farther north in that region in Syria, Jesus' uh, reputation was known and people came from all over with various afflictions. And notice the categories that, that Matthew uses. Pressed by demons, epileptics, 
paralytics, and he healed them. It's worth noting that Matthew distinguishes between demon possession and epilepsy. You sometimes hear, well, you know, we know that, uh, you know, we, we know today what they thought was demon possession is epilepsy today. Well, there's a distinction made here. And those who were paralyzed, that was not demon possession. They were paralyzed. And there was no cure, no help for them, in, especially in the first century. And so Matthew distinguishes between demon possession and the other ailments. But at any rate, Jesus healed all of them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, the Ten Cities region, from Jerusalem and Judea, even down in the south, and from beyond to the east of the Jordan. So we've seen a beginning here of Jesus' public ministry after his baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness. He begins his ministry in relative obscurity, even some rejection apparently in Nazareth. But by the end of chapter 4, great crowds are coming after Jesus, his renown is spreading. But for us, it's important to remember, again, that Jesus' work was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus came preaching with confidence in the power of the Word of God, the message of the kingdom, and we preach the same today, that Jesus chose to use people and called certain ones that we see here, but also uses us in the ministry of his kingdom. And then it was accompanied by power. Granted, you and I generally can't call on a paralytic to get up, take his mat, and walk. That was a prerogative of Jesus and of his apostles indicating their authority. But it's a very powerful ministry in the church when we accompany not only the declaration and proclamation of the kingdom with the extension of mercy through the kingdom. And it's a powerful ministry for a church not to give up the ministry of word through preaching and teaching, but to make it all the more strong by fleshing it out through showing mercy, grace, help to those with whom we come in contact. Certainly meeting the spiritual and eternal needs of the soul, but coupling that by showing the grace and mercy of Christ to physical needs and needs of the body as well. Jesus did it. And as a church, we need to make that uh, a priority as well, ministering the word and ministering indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, these early days of Jesus' ministry that we look at here and how you were at work there. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege, privilege of being a part of that, though some 2,000 years later, nevertheless, the same kingdom, the same work going on, certainly having spread far more around the world than in those days. But we thank you that we are a part of this very same kingdom and that we have the privilege of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Father, we pray for our church, pray for our families, and pray for us as individual believers that we would be followers of Jesus. And Lord Jesus, that you would make us fishers of men and glorify yourself. Help us, Father, to be able to pull in a large catch and that you would be glorified and they would be saved and we would be encouraged. Glorify yourself, Jesus, in our midst. We ask it in your name. Amen.